Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. Got some bad news for you. It's just me, J. David Osborne, and that being Chris Sacknessum tonight. We do not have Lisa back. I know you're all very upset about that, but you're going to have to make do. We'll we'll try to pick up the slack in her absence. We will, and it's exciting that the the feedback. We really appreciate hearing that, and I know she will. We'll, we're I'm, you know we're both excited about relaying the enthusiasm for her appearance, and uh, you know we are good listeners. So if you know, we'll we'll very strongly consider having her back on. Absolutely, absolutely. So before the show, we have our structured program with some great notes that build off of the last episode. And we have our segments that we will get to. But Chris told me that he had an epic bullet-pointed takedown of Neil deGrasse Tyson's appearance on Bill Maher's podcast. And I told him, Chris, I am always, always down (laughs) for Neil deGrasse Tyson's slander. So hit me with it, dude. Okay, okay. I'm glad you you share my enthusiasm for this. I mean, I think everybody knows who we're talking about, and and he is a very likable celebrity. Uh, I think that he is not to me. Okay, well, he's performing a function, and I think that if he weren't in that role, somebody like him would be there. But mm-hmm. it occurred to me watching their interaction, and that I don't think. Mar was very happy with the, they they didn't seem to be getting along too well, but in the process of this hour long uh, interview, Tyson really just completely laid out all of the problems, the major problems that David and I have talked about in past episodes regarding scientism, the institutionalization of scientific orthodoxy as a social belief system that is actually counter to the principles and best practices of science. And I thought I would just run through what was going on. He very openly comes out in an avuncular, but also profoundly pompous and smug, self-satisfied way that his orientation is evidence. And I wrote down in my notes, his God is evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to realize, and this is true of the people who we most associate with this movement of scientism, is that how completely out of alignment he is with the history and philosophy of science. Science is not about the certainty in belief. It's about uncertainty. It's about raising of questions, speculating answers in the form of hypotheses, and developing some kind of experimental framework to interrogate those hypotheses. It's a never-ending, very open-ended, unstable pursuit. And to hear Tyson talk is really, well, it's the privilege of history because we have so much more evidence to look at than, you know, say, 200 years ago. I don't think there's more science today. I certainly think people were practicing science 200 years ago. So I think there's a profound arrogance about 
the philosophy of science, how it actually works, that no one seems to want to question because he's, you know, who he is. Mm. The second thing is he doesn't in any way acknowledge any problems with defining what evidence might mean. The fact mm-hmm. that it might be different mm-hmm. science to science, the fact mm-hmm. that collecting evidence, curating it, validating it, all of those are major issues. And I'm thinking of it really on an epistemology basis, not an ethics level. But let's face it, the ethics level, I'm coming around to that in a moment. But the thing that I would take out as a total layperson, if I were uneducated and just wowed by his celebrity personality, my takeout would be is that all of the sciences have an equally rich degree of evidence that they are supported by. And this is just so fundamentally not true. It 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 makes a monolith of the sciences and creates science. Yeah. And that monolith is going to fall on the average person's shoulders. And I think it's um it's flabby rhetoric and it flattens all of the interesting questions. But then here's another point that I think is really gets to the scientism problem at the very street level of the general public. He makes a huge thing going on and on and on about Harvard and his academic credentials and referring to other scientists in those circles. Mm -hmm. And so he's taking a lot of credit and, and wanting a lot of prestige for that. But he doesn't acknowledge that because scientists work in the, the, you know, context of academia, corporate R&D, government agencies, and the military, their whole orientation is determined by their masters. Yeah. Kinds of questions that are of interest to them, what the evidence that they're seeking is predetermined by who's paying the bills. There isn't any free inquiry in some sort of open-minded, genuinely pure science sense at all. No. And he just does not deal with that. So I thought I'd run that past because because we we've had some really good episodes prosecuting scientism, and this was just fresh in my mind, and it does tie into our broader um, recent topics about education. So what do you think about that? I think that the first thing that comes to mind was it William James who had the aphorism about negatives and positives, about how you have to take more steps to prove a negative that's bergson yeah bergson Bergson. Bergson. Bergson, thank you so bergson's principle of positive always being better than negative uh to me combines with what you were saying about this military industrial r&d you know ivy league not just ivy league but collegiate complex that moves these certain ideas forward and pushes other ones to the wayside, it does seem to me that you can approach science in identical ways, but with two completely different attitudes towards them, the negative and the positive. So if I came to you and I said, what if the Big Bang never happened? The Big Bang never happened. You can respond to that in two ways. You could say one, uh, well, that's stupid. 
all the evidence that we have right now suggests that it did happen that way. I don't like that you had that idea. You're wasting my time. Or you could say, hmm, interesting. Let's see if, expand on that. Keep talking. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like somebody like Neil deGrasse Tyson, the pomposity of the, here's another ism, credentialism Mm -hmm. that he displays. And this kind of astounding propensity to shut down any kind of thought that is outside of this very narrow uh, uh, parameter that he set for himself. It just, I'm envisioning a world that has a different kind of science. One that goes, that's a cool idea. Let's think about that rather than that's nonsense. Stop thinking about that. It's kind of like two approaches to raising a child in a way. (laughs) People never really grow out of that. You know, you just made me think that wouldn't it be wonderful to bring Terrence McKenna and Christopher mm-hmm. back to life and have a debate between McKenna and Tyson and have it moderated by Hitchens? Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, wouldn't that be cool? Because McKenna, obviously, one of the patron saints of the show, is the first person who comes to mind. Him, Alan Watts, comes to mind as well. I ne- I've listened to dozens maybe at this point hundreds of hours of alan watts lectures and i never once heard him say what a stupid question Mm -hmm. or that's false and we can prove it through no part of his charm and his whimsy is the ability to take audience questions to field audience questions by the way side note i love the way audience questions sound on these old recordings in addition to how his voice sounds there's just something so aesthetically pleasing about the whole experience but Hmm. i will listen to some of those questions and i'll have the neil degrasse tyson demon on my shoulder and say well were you not listening to the lecture like he told you the answer to the question that you're asking but he accepts everything with grace and as an opportunity to spin these yarns that are so compelling and so interesting and get you interested in things like philosophy and science. So I just, it really is an attitude problem. Neil deGrasse Tyson has a real attitude problem, but to be fair, so do people like Bill Maher, just about different things. I think know? that is fair. And I think that was the conflict, you know, that, that mm-hmm. certainly more didn't, didn't break through my uh, annoyance uh, shield. Right. Um, right. But- it was it was it was not a, a functioning sort of interview. It was not helpful in a way, and it was quite clear that Tyson is also quite cagey. And this is what I really don't like about. It. I think there's a sneakiness to. It. He wants to be hip and loved by everybody, and he really has uh, an incredibly orthodox position on science versus religion. You know, absolutely he does. And yet he won't admit that. Mm -hmm. And he was really, really skating around the whole transgender issue and trying to play the hormone game and to be loved by everyone. And that is on top of the other problems we've mentioned, I think is is just deadly. You know, it really is. But he he at no point seems to have 
read Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions mm. about how thinking and paradigms mm-hmm. shift, but mm-hmm. only over time. I mean, Kuhn's mechanism is very crude. One generation of scientists dies off. You know, it's not like they suddenly have an epiphany that they do check out the evidence in a new way. No, they just die. And then mm-hmm. younger people come up. And they have had more time to, you know, not just question the evidence, but to I hopefully, you know, do some actual creative thinking and to be mm-hmm. asking some questions. But I don't think that Tyson has read people like Bergson or Alan Watts or John Lilly or McKenna or Thomas Kuhn. I don't I think there's a whole body of philosophic thought about science oftentimes written by scientists and he Mm -hmm. just doesn't want to have anything to do with them because he's been told that he's a genius so many times he believes it yeah yeah no i get what you're saying totally and you're um talking about the transgender question it could be solved so quickly if you make an allowance and an affordance for the third man in the woods or the, just the third thing in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That question becomes a discussion that can be had <clears throat> once there's an allowance for ironically, all things considered stepping outside of a binary, right? Th- these binary arguments about things is where they start to not make sense and they start to have conflicts. Um, but if there's a third thing, I've never understood why there couldn't just be a third thing. That seems so strange to me. Well, it's a kind of rigidity of mind. But you could also say, in his case, that if he's going to make such a point of evidence, well, you could look at the very physical evidence of 8 billion people and, and look in statistical terms at, you know, mm-hmm. that's science. Mm-hmm. Statistics are the basis of science in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I think he's kind of making a god of evidence, and then really making himself god of what kinds of evidence he's looking at. And I think it's weird this focus on evidence, which is sort of a criminal investigation term. It doesn't yeah. sound, um, you know, like really fun questions to ask about the world. Just being curious, you know, it yeah. sounds like no, I've got to be right, you know. Yeah. I was on a podcast the other day and I said that uh, I believe that human beings in the form that we exist right now have been around for millions of years and they were open to it. They're cool guys. But if somebody were to ask me for evidence for that, I would just say, you're no fun. You're no fun. Of course, I don't have evidence for that. It's a hunch. It's a feeling. Well, but that's a very serious point of view across a much broader range of topics because not everything is going to have evidence. Mm -hmm. So just that framework, not only is it not fun and anal retentive and just a hassle to be around in personality terms, it's it's really not viable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like William James and Bergson have, have talked about and Gilbert Ryle, they've made some really good cases of why that kind of thinking is is only useful to a certain point. I mean, mm-hmm. Heisenberg, for instance, I mean, there's some heavyweight, real famous scientists who have explained a very different position. 
and it's much more provisional. It's much more uh, uncertain. It's certainly less dictatorial. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of ground where real science starts to happen and people get inspired and want to take up the torch and move on. Whereas I think Tyson's uh, influence is really about making celebrities, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. And that exactly. that's, there's nothing, there's nothing intelligent, nothing intellectual about that. It's just another celebrity. Absolutely. I enjoyed that takedown. Do you have an aphorism in a band for us? Today? I do. I do. Okay. The band is, I, I'm, I'm back on a controversial framework here. Um, I'm, distancing myself from this topic i'm just thinking about what this band might be they're called the unborn and their music is made entirely from fetal heartbeats metabolic (laughs) noise and biofeedback but from several species not just humans and they also include animal and human mating or sex sounds. So they're right. trying to create a total, total matrix. And their album is called, I think given the name of the band, The Unborn, you're getting a flavor of this. The album title is Murder Mystery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right right (laughs) so we're getting Uh, right down to it or mm -hmm. some people will feel that way i'm just you know just raising some issues but Mm -hmm. i think it's an interesting idea that's great i love that that's too funny okay and here's my aphorism i'm i'm gonna go with uh i have several but i'm gonna go with this this longer one the universe the world human history and human society today can't be held responsible for your expectations of any kind even though they've undeniably participated in their creation you are the alchemical catalyst that activates your expectations The alchemical catalyst who activates your expectations. So it's a radical argument for a really important but tactical sense of self-responsibility of not Mm. just putting it out into the system, you know, the atmospheric, you know, tone of society, the environment, family, schools. Yeah, all of those things influence us, of course. But when it comes to our expectations, our judgment of the world, why should things be different? Why aren't things the way we expect them to be? Why are they? We're in control of that. Or we have to take responsibility. We may not feel we're in control of that, but I think that we are the, um, the proving ground launch pad for the activation of all expectations. They don't exist anywhere. Our expectations don't exist anywhere else except in us. 
Right. I love that you use the word responsibility too, because I feel like it's the perfect fit for what you're saying. When you break it down Donna Haraway style into responsibility, like the ability for you to respond to them and to take also some in the stewardship sense of the word responsibility for them. I love the idea of us as stewards of many things, the land, our homes, our families, our friends, but also our intentions and our, our goals and our actions. I think that is a, that's a great way to look at them. And the way that you've put it rides that balance between wrestling reality into submission to bend it to your will in a kind of Aleister Crowley type way to something that's much more my speed, where if you don't go out and tend to the land, it's going to become a shit show. But you also can't force nature to do what you want it to. But what you can do is tend to it and steward mm-hmm. it. So I liked that one. That's a, I think that's really valuable. And only cool. you can do it. You're the only one. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I think that's crucial to the understanding is um, because, you know, it it also ties into the fact that a lot of us don't feel important enough in our own lives. You know, that's what a lot of people think. Well, this is a chance to be be really important because this one's on all of us individually. What is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay, well, we're going to rock and roll with something that has uh, a couple of different elements to it. But I want to uh, do some experimenting with uh, a concept that I'm going to mention in the dream segment, but you'll get an idea here. Whatever response you come up with in terms of a kind of story scenario, whatever, in response to my second part of the premise, you must incorporate three places that you that I know that you're familiar with South Korea your choice of Portland or El Paso and Taos New Mexico so what I'm experimenting with here is the notion the dream compositing of places which is huge in my dream mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but as a writer in a fictional sense I really believe in place as and setting as a kind of character And I want to see how just forcing you into these geographic zones, however you interpret them, however you travel between them, how that influences uh, what your response will be. Okay, so that's really it's a story that mingles those three places. But I do want to give you another handle. Because I think this is uh, really cool. And I, I sort of was thinking of it as a tool, but I want to want to sort of move it forward into into your zone now it's the concept of inversion that we've talked about but this specifically has to do with breaking up cause and effect sequentiality and i said here's an example of a time inversion or rather a way to partially disarm or tinker with the metronome of cause and effect consider the idea of denial let's say self-denial, as in a type of quasi-intentional deception. What if instead of being a response, however transparent or ornate, what if instead it was the vector of decision? And by that, I mean, think of it in this context. 
The capacity for denial is one of the signature traits of the alcoholic. With our inversion lens, we might ask instead, what if the capacity for denial finds the alcoholism rather than the alcoholism giving rise to denial? Mm-hmm. So I know that's complicated, but I think it is just a, a, an expansion of our principle of inversion and putting that to use. So to sum up, your imaginative challenge asks you to create a scenario that links or dissolves through three very different locales, which I know you have had some personal experience with, and that somehow it's going to flesh out and bring to life uh, this the idea of inversion in the kind of upsetting of time and, and cause and effect. You do such a great job. I still remember your interpretation of the Doppler effect. That's going back a few episodes. And I asked you to put that into a social frame. And I was just stunned by how gorgeously practical and interesting that was. So any questions? No, I think I might already have my initial concept. Um, This is right up my alley because, you know, I love, you know, I love turning something like denial into a monster that yeah that wants to be born in this yeah. world yeah and and invents whiskey to make it happen you know um i'm right, glad cool. you dig this because i've really I, my own thinking about inversion has gotten so much more dimensionalized through your responses and your riffs and suggestions and It makes me think it really is just, uh, oh, and I've got a great word for that, which I'll lay out right. It's emblemental. Isn't that outstanding? Isn't that outstanding? Yes, sir. It's so simple. I'm sure, you know, I'm not the first to have thought of that, but in the way that you and I use emblematic and emblem, I think it's really, uh, it's just hot, you know? Yeah. No, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, okay, cool. We are going to continue on our talk that we had with Lisa. You sent some notes. I'll paraphrase your thinking about this. Namely, that, um, you know, there is the communication between different levels of education, the way that we discussed uh teaching with Lisa, who's an elementary school teacher, I'm a secondary teacher, and you're a college teacher, uh, revealed that there is a system, but perhaps uh, not a program. And so in these notes, you are looking for a way to understand what learning is, particularly through the lens of the memory palace and the swamp. And I will go through your points now one at a time because I think they do a good job of building up to something. But there's okay. an important what I want listeners to to focus on here is we're going to get to this in point two, but the difference between knowledge and information is key for this discussion. Before the microchip, there was the transistor. We don't have knowledge science. That would be semantically redundant. We have information science, which can be thought of as knowledge management. If you look at the relatively recent history of this crucial cultural practice, a peculiar trend decisively emerges. 
knowledge gets miniaturized. I don't think we've paid nearly enough attention to that in modern society. What does it look like for knowledge to be miniaturized? Okay, well, I'm glad you hear the emphasis in that because I it really grabbed me and I think it is something that needs fleshing out. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity, but also I think it's a necessary challenge. Two things, I think it means an atomized approach. I think mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, a really um, a mechanical or mechanistic collection of individual noun frames, items, rather than dynamic ecosystems of knowledge. I think there's a real conflict there. I think we've got kind of like in conceptual terms, we've got the the, the uh, particle and wave problem. You know, does knowledge behave like waves or is it really a, a series of very, very individual discrete uh, particles that may or that may intersect, may interact, never really mingle? Mm-hmm. So I think that is the first acknowledgement of a major problem, a major different way, a schism between how we see knowledge and the particle individual information packet necessitates miniaturization because you get more and more things piling up. It's like warehousing. So you've got to find somehow more space. You're going to have to shrink the elements. And to what extent you can actually do that is, is another question. But the goal of that becomes that. And the thinking begins to turn around on that. And so we get more and more narrow specialization in the sciences and really in all walks of life. Um, We get more and more division. And meanwhile, we're talking about systems and integration and these dynamic sort of patterns, but we really don't believe in them. We're really stuck on this very hard little bundles of, uh, you know, like gumballs, you know, really, it's just a big gumball machine. And, that's not very helpful. Right, right. You know, it reminds I, me of those ball pits at Ikea. Yeah, absolutely. So you're drawing a distinction between two types of miniaturization. The one that we have, if you were thinking about knowledge in terms of a computer file, you're looking at something that is getting more and more corrupted the more that it's shrunk, the more um, semantic validity and uh, 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 worth. So you think of an image like a JPEG file mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it, the more it's shrunk down, the more the edges get blurred until eventually you just have a, an assemblage of pixels that don't make any sense. And what could be suggested as an alternative is the zip file, right? An envelope that contains full files within it, but has been compressed. And maybe the metaphor or the koan is kind of that zip file or envelope. So a a different way of miniaturization instead of just this kind of pragmatic uh, devolution that leads to corruption. Well, I certainly like that thinking and I, I, we absolutely need some sort of metaphor analogy or model that is a little bit more optimistic. The hologram comes to mind that strange property of any element of the hologram somehow containing the whole of the information you know, right. people often talk about the, the universe as a hologram or the holographic right. 
universe. Something about all that doesn't it it doesn't really solve the problem for me because when you mentioned JPEG as a format, it occurred to me that you can have such radically different JPEGs. You know, everything can become a JPEG, for instance. I, I know that, that that metaphor applies across many different kinds of file formats. But what I'm saying is you create a kind of pigeonhole and you stream everything through that. And you're assuming, well, the frame becomes more important than the contents. You can have a little teenage TikTok, you know, bunnies snapshot of a party and that's a jpeg and then there's a jpeg of a mark rothko painting and they're both of equal visual import in some people's minds and i think that is part of the the miniaturization uh equation it's a consequence of it it becomes there are no levels and dimensional planes of meaning and value everything kind of flattens to uh ultimately a, you know a pixel you know the second point we have first the matter of knowledge becoming perhaps degenerating into information secondly we have the problem of more total information then the strange case of information becoming smaller this doesn't suggest that the nature of knowledge has changed shape and form over history. It's performance proof. This is a curious analog of the difficulty in connecting three teachers at three grade levels. No wonder there's a problem. The fundamental nature of knowledge has qualitatively changed shape from ancient times. We can track the coherence and connection with the Greeks and the ancient Chinese and also how we've completely and irrevocably diverged. I'd suggest that all the social, psychological, and socio-political problems we see influencing education today are totally predictable consequences of this transformation of knowledge. I'll read the second note, or the third note as well. What we really mean now by information is a vast compendium of miniaturized, digitized facts with a capital F, the working definition of knowledge at street level, the basic master goal of an education system, is what quantity of facts an average person needs to function. Knowledge yields to education, which is a process of accessing and deploying facts. We all <clears throat> know this person. We all know this person who will give you an absolute bombardment of facts when you're talking about anything, but is a complete idiot and you yep. can't quite explain to them why they're an idiot because they don't get it because to them they've accumulated hundreds and thousands of facts they know things about things but they have no depth to it no real knowledge about anything and i think that where we're at now is you're absolutely correct in that that is becoming the, the program, the pacing guide for how we teach people. Um, and it makes me wonder now, uh, some of my students who maybe aren't doing so well, I, I do wonder, and we'll get to this later on, because you you there's actually uh, a program here at the end of, of what we should do. But I wonder if they wouldn't do better if they were told, hey, you don't have to memorize facts anymore, dude. It's fine. Let's learn things instead. 
Well, it's interesting. This ties back to Tyson, you know, his his notion of evidence. If you if you start to interrogate <coughs> that idea, well, it would be facts. That's what he would be providing as evidence. Whereas I think you could say, and what I think a bit more optimistic and lateral thinking scientists would say, um, is that the, the value of science is its predictive abilities, its creative mm-hmm. abilities, what it can do in the world. It isn't about you know bastioning a belief system, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly not making a religious anti-religious argument. Its its principles are much more creative and possibly uh, socially functional, mm-hmm. but if they generate rather than validate. You know. That's the switch there. They generate. Did you say? I'm sorry. Did you say generate rather than validate? Yeah, I mean, or, of course they validate. Okay. Of course, that's part of what's going on. But if that, if science were only about proving certain things, and that was the framework, nothing would ever really happen and get done. Mm-hmm. I mean. Think about Sir Francis Drake circumnavigating the world back with the most primitive navigation tools. Mm-hmm, and I there's mm-hmm. no not much evidence to work with there. Mm-mm, and mm-hmm. yet the performance was mighty, you know, sailing back up the Thames up to the gunnels with Spanish treasure, having circumnavigated the globe with Queen Elizabeth, still a queen. I mean, whoa. And I think that that element of of performance and capability is where science is fun and exciting. And the person who just knows facts, it's like, oh, okay, really? Um, And invariably, that leads to trivia. That leads Mm -hmm. to trivialization. Because, well, what facts Mm -hmm. are important? Well, they're all important. You just need to, you know, and just have fun with facts, you know? Who played Blanche on the Golden Girls? Yeah, that's an important thing to have in your head. Yeah, I wonder too if this doesn't explain people's aesthetic appreciation and you know them being drawn to stories from this time, because, like you said, when Drake is setting out on his adventure, I wonder if he had a PowerPoint presentation or a spreadsheet or <laughs> some some good facts to get him to go no. Facts are the boner killer of adventure. And when you set your stories in times like this, you don't have to worry about pesky stuff like that, about facts and, you know, making sure that everybody knows all the different little bullet points of, of what you're going to do. We, this is Chris, uh, we have then the problem of who is curating and validating the facts, which has been a topic of ours since the beginning. But we also have a direct tie-in with my, this is David talking, much more recent point that the essential nature of any religion is the need to outsource validation. It's the dependent dependence on the outsourcing process that defines the religious nature of any practice. However, seemingly unrelated to denotative religion it may be, this is an insight worthy of William James. Okay, and you knew I was going to include your your praise of me i'm not oh look well i i i I genuinely sincerely mean it i think it's one of the most important things that i've heard in the last few years 
And William James would be very proud and would resonate to that idea. I think that that makes an enormous amount of sense out of a lot of popular culture that would otherwise be, I think, well, certainly not as satisfyingly uh, laid bare. I think that's what you what you do. And that's very difficult to do with a, with a major, you know, integrating, distilling idea. It's pretty easy to oversimplify and, and miss a lot of, of key stitches. But I, I just don't think you do with that. I think it opens up the door to a lot of things. And it uh, it also gets us past what I think, I mean, everyone's concerned about the ethics and honesty of, of, of facts being, I mean, it's a problem if there are lies. If It's a problem if there's outright deception, of course. And it's a problem if they're just inaccurate. But I think that what we're saying is there's a deeper problem in just simply having to look to, to outsource the certification or validation. I think the moment we've done that, and we're all doing that, and mm -hmm. all of the sciences break apart. I mean, we don't really have a great polymath, you know, as we did in the, in the 19th century. They were pretty common, you know. Yeah on Humboldt, yeah. you know, they're just on and on and on. We don't have that capability at all. And that is right. one of the reasons why AI is on the rise, because we've reached the point where we're over-specialized and we just simply can't find that in individuals. And if we could, we still wouldn't have the sociology to really have a community. They just would rip each other to shreds, you know, Wolverines in an outhouse kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I really wish that there was a, a comeback of the polymath, which I think we're trying to do here a little bit, um, because I think that those people are much more interesting. And I think that the most important quality of the polymath is the synthesis ability. Yes. If you have two, yes. two disparate interests that you are knowledgeable in, <clears throat> you can meld them together. I really want to get to your prescription here, though, because... Here's what Chris thinks we can do with this insight in terms of education. We shift the entire focus of any attempt at program from facts-based dependence to skills-based performance. We look at middle school, where all the problems really show up, as we mentioned the other night, and build on that level's structural idea from the start. Students may have a homeroom teacher, like a medical primary caregiver, but all subjects become skill sets and are presented presented by guest teachers, specialists, community members. This would happen from the very start. Rather than one, usually female teacher, as an archetypal parent proxy, we'd begin, quote unquote, school with an extended family of more humble instructors. There'd be no need for any curricula with the AI revolution impending. Focus on skills. School becomes workshops, seminars, field trips, and diagnostic performances of applications. We reframe the notion of learning to doing, old school. We'd emphasize problem solving, games-based strategies, and hands-on projects. No subjects, actually, all projects. Sports get reframed more in terms of fitness. Everything becomes more active and boy-friendly. We move homeschooling out of houses and into the community. We focus on what communities have to teach rather than on what beleaguered and undertrained professionals, professional educators have to indoctrinate. We streamline all administration and integrate any psychological nursing services into healthcare at large. 
the whole thing would start to look like a monstrous mutation of summer camp, military-style basic training, and the traditional children-directed activities of hide-and-seek, etc., before adults started trying to micromanage everything. I think in 176 episodes, you've had a lot of brilliant ideas. This is a top five for sure. This is how it should look. Yeah, this is absolutely, I'm having, I saw, and whenever I like an idea this much, I try to, uh, you know, pick it apart. And I had a, a real trouble doing that when I was reading this. I was just nodding my head. So unfortunately, I don't have uh, much in the way of friction with this. I just think it's all great. I think this would be perfect. Well, I really appreciate hearing that because I I, I really, it, it flowed very uh, spontaneously. And yet mm-hmm. I realized I've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. And the show has helped me refine ideas you're entering the teaching field. Our discussion the other night with Lisa, a lot of things sort of come together. I mean, I think there are, of course, people would would raise any number of practical, operational sort of issues with this. And I'm not saying that that wouldn't be the case. And I'm not saying that this could entirely be rolled out with perfect consistency, say, nationally in America. In a sense, this is an argument against that kind of national overframe rubric. And it would be more community-driven. And there might be any number of problems with it. I'm not saying that. But, well, I, I think we all agree, and, and the three of us certainly the other night, that we've got a problem that is critical to the survival Mm -hmm. Uh, Western culture, but certainly to America. We're we're in a situation that that is, well, some people would say it's beyond repair. I don't Mm -hmm. think you take that dismal view, but something has got to be done. And I think that my points do address some crucial issues. And here's kind of my breakdown is I think in moving to skills rather than facts, we acknowledge that facts are on hand through the internet, through Google, through AI. We don't need to have constant access to all of those. They're kind of like renting equipment or renting tools. You only need them when you need them. Whereas what we really need is skill to know what we need and to be able to improvise tools and to be creating new tools and really have it be as hands-on as possible. Hands the education of the hands, you know, this is really a fundamental thing that is killing us off. And I think it's it's had a detrimental impact on both boys and girls uh, in one sense. But I certainly think boys have, have really suffered from it. And totally. I think that the streams of, uh, say, academics or scholastic pursuit versus technical trades um, th- that's not a healthy schism. That's a class schism. And we're trying to break those down, I thought, you know, diversity and inclusion. So mm-hmm. start with skills as a framework and, and prosecute everything in terms of does it meet the skill criteria, not the old knowledge management of facts, 
and change everything around that in terms from the classroom structures to content to through examination or some sort of performance reward achievement, you know, diagnostic. Right. Turn everything around. I feel like this addresses some key points too. Uh, the first one and the most important one is the presence of AI. This to me seems like the most rational and realistic response to <clears throat> AI getting better every day and being able to generate not just facts, but entire essays if you wanted to. Okay, that exists. So what do we? what are we then doing? Why are we having kids memorize dates and facts when there's a computer that can do that for them? It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, it mitigates the insidious nature of some of the more indoctrinal aspects of education right now, where you do have this parental figure. Um, I'm thinking everything from, you know, uh, some of the stuff you see on the TikTok, whatever, you know, all the way to just stupid ideas that they're passing on to kids. Uh, a person who was a kind of scout leader in this new conception of education wouldn't have any need to really pass on their stupid ideas to kids because they'd be busy doing things. One thing that I've noticed about the classroom is that there's, you can get pretty bored even as a teacher and you can just start talking. When I talk, <clears throat> it's usually Chris Sacknesum light type ideas. I'm asking kids about, you know, what did you dream about? Like, what, like, what do you, what do you think this even means? Where did this word come from? But a lot of them, when they don't have anything else to talk about, they're just parroting things that they've heard on, uh, social media. So there are, there's those two, there's the AI there is fighting back against this indoctrinal, uh, uh, kind of libs of TikTok type stuff. Thirdly though, if you want to get kids to the point where they become Renaissance men, the skills come first because the right. interest in writing an essay or doing a complex calculus equation or understanding biology or astronomy or any of those things naturally arises from tactile interactions with the world. Kids who are interested in geometry are interested in cool buildings first. Kids who are interested in engineering are interested in dump trucks first. So skills-based, you're actually getting to the heart of this problem that these idiots have been trying to solve for a hundred years now, and that we had kind of figured out, even though we didn't know it back when there wasn't a preponderance of video games and phones and TV, and people went out into the world and did things, you found out what interested you that way. You found out that you were interested in poetry by hearing someone recite poetry somewhere. Uh, you found out that you were interested in books by being so damn bored that you went over to your dad's bookshelf and opened it up and found out that they're awesome. It's to me an unobtrusive and completely logical pathway towards not only revolutionizing the way that kids are taught, but in its own way, shepherding them towards your initial goals in the first place. So I just think it's perfect. 
Well said, particularly on that last point. I think you rounded up everything that I was hoping for there. And it, it really does, if this approach were embraced and given some time, I think it really would pioneer some new directions in terms of the original traditional goals of liberal arts education and science in a way that we're just we're we're simply not fulfilling them we're failing at them absolutely i think that's absolutely true i want to move into our other segments but i feel like that is a great follow-up to our conversation with lisa i think that well what else can you really do I mean, Chris just solved education, so where, where do you really go from there? <laughs> well, thank you. I, I don't know if that's uh, – I think that's very generous, but I think that um, there. I, I'm pleased that you see some fundamental value in at least considering that transformation from a facts-based approach to skills-based, particularly in light of the AI revolution. Cool. The principle of inversion with three places, El Paso, Korea, and Taos, New Mexico. I think that, where do I want to start? My notes are kind of all over the place. Well, first of all, I'll just start by talking about these places. I love them all. I left Portland out because I have a lot of bitter feelings about uh, Portland. (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, I like these other three places. I love South Korea. I love its density and its twisting, winding back alleys full of, uh, you know, fish tank octopus and, you know, strange anime characters. I love El Paso. I love the people. I love Mexican culture and the food and their lack of giving a shit. And I love Taos aesthetically. I've Taos to me, when I think about that word, it feels like a warm blanket. And I think about the fact that when I was in Taos, I was reading a random article about Hodorowsky, and there was a picture that he had taken of Dennis Hopper, and they were in Taos when I read it. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is just too much of a sink. A picture of Dennis Hopper taken by Hodorowsky, or I'm sorry, backwards, I had that backwards, a picture of Hodorowsky taken by Dennis Hopper at his place in Taos uh, was just too much for me. So I love these places. The concept of inversion that I want to work with, though, with all of them is the border. So Korea has a very obvious border, north and south. It's a a site of a lot of tension. In fact, nuclear tension. El Paso has the border fence between it and Juarez, Mexico. Taos is a little bit trickier, although when you travel some of the back uh, roads in Taos, some of the fences that people have in their backyard are nearly eight feet high. And it creates a kind of similarity to the border fence that I noticed in, in El Paso. Um, so using the concept of inversion, we have borders that begin their life as ley lines. They always exist. But a border is hungry for a country. Borders oh. want country. So a border is a quantum state that wants different objects to rub up against each other, right? So walking along a border in my mind is very similar to walking down a row of shelves in a library, 
right? With books on either side of you. When you're in the border, you are in the meeting place of all these different ideas. But uh, in Taos, there is also, there is a border in a sense between the native Pueblos and the people who moved there. So there's a reservation, which is a kind of border. Um, but a border is where values, culture, and skin color rub up against each other. And it's my contention that that exists before the country. That is fascinating, David. I love that idea. I think you have taken this new evolved version of inversion and really put it to a very interesting use. The border wants the country. This is exactly the kind of thinking I think you've really twisted, you know, that you you got onto it completely. And once you've said that and given those examples, and I think it's interesting because I gave you the physical locations, the countries in this case, or the terrain, you didn't get to choose those. So you had to make of the choice I was, I gave you some connect, point of connection. And I think the border boundary uh and you're not just saying, well, there's always a border and boundary everywhere, you know, no, no, no. In fact, it's really important, you know, mm -hmm. in all three mm -hmm. of the, that is a great uh, consistency, a great link between the three. And then to make the, the pivot and to say, yeah, the border is hungry for the country. It's not the other way around. And it's not as if, well, the border is simply a consequence or a ramification. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really the essence of, of the, the time inversion that I was putting forward is it's, it really does flip things around in terms of the deeper cause and effect question, you mm -hmm. know, deeper mm -hmm. value question of, well, what it actually is leading, you know, if, if we say a does follow B, maybe we just need to look a little bit more closely at what we're, what, you know, how we're labeling those things. Maybe we need just to think about moving them keep the venn mm -hmm. diagrams the same but change the contents i think you've done a really nice job with that i i love that cool. idea and i think Thank it you. would help listeners then to triangulate which is another one of our lost explorers ideas to triangulate and extrapolate one step further and to take this idea in their you know in your own just have some thought about that because I put down a point. David comes back with a very interesting other point. Now there's some real energy to go to a third point and that can open everything right up, you know, be the third thing, be our third thing. We work in threes here. We are two, but we work in threes. Um, right. Yep. What is your tool and tip for today? Okay, I've been thinking about visual communication. Um, I'm working on a big freelance project for a major textbook publisher, not the company that publishes my textbook, I might add. But here's an exercise that you can do on your own, but I certainly encourage it for anyone in an educational frame, keeping with our, our theme of the last couple of weeks. Try to construct an actual functioning sentence using emojis or rebus-like graphics illustrations solely, okay? And okay. really, the emphasis there is, is, if possible, try to make it a coherent 
structurally sound sentence rather than just a tidbit phrase or um, a paraphrase, you know, mm -hmm. try to make it a proper sentence so that if you were hieroglyphically focused, you would look at that and say that there's a semantics there, not just uh, a kind of interpretive dance approach to it. I think that nothing will clarify the amazing magic and danger of linguistic sentence structure in the sense of words. I think we really need to revisit how mysterious that is, how fraught it is. And then when, when we realize the effort that, that is really required, and we certainly get past recognizing the effort, it becomes invisible to us and totally taken for granted as we grow. But somewhere back in the beginning for all of us, we, we really struggled. Um, it makes you realize just how much of our consciousness gets focused on that kind of coding, decoding, recoding practice. And it really takes tremendous energy away from other forms of alertness and awareness. And I think it's very tyrannical. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's magical and, it, and we're very grateful for it. But I, I can't think of a writer in, in the modern era that didn't balance a love of words and a worship of words with also a kind of suspicion, if not resentment of words. Mm -hmm. I think would you agree with that, that there's a kind of a, a love hate that defines modern literature. I think that it's very simplistic, but I think that is one common feature of it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I do like this idea of freeing up space, not being a slave to the constant, as you put it, coding and decoding and coding and decoding and coding and decoding. I think it has a lot of legs to open up that kind of space for other pursuits, which I think are valuable. Good. Yeah. I, I, and I think it it's also just a lot of fun. I think it yeah. helps younger people to really uh, look a little bit more analytically and critically at symbols and signs and emojis mm -hmm. and to really appreciate what's going on with those, because we're getting to, I think we may be already past the point with a whole generation where they're just not seeing the strangeness. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, it's almost too late to call that attention to them uh i'm having some success with that and this is the kind of of exercise that helps with that so worth trying whether or not you're one's a teacher or a student you can do it alone but i think it, it is really challenging and it really starts to make you think dang you know we mm -hmm. we seriously are dependent on language i mean really it, it's kind of scary i don't want to go back to my acid trip of thinking about how words are coming out of my mouth but yes i agree with you <laughs> okay are we ready for the tip let's go okay i have two and i i am i'm a, i am serious about the first one it but i'm also tongue-in-cheek too I was driving out of my house and there's lots of little baby quail and quail and rabbits and a lot of wildlife to look out for. And 
then there was a pigeon. And I was getting a little tired of having to dodge all these creatures. And I thought, I'm, I'm just not going to do that for a pigeon. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, pigeons are very hard to kill. Think of all the pigeons there are in the world and how rarely you see a dead pigeon. Really. It's a pretty significant population. And they have an immense survival capability. They really do. But, you know, somewhere on the spectrum of cockroaches and rodents, they're intense. So my my first tip is a question. You know, we're just a challenge. Actually, maybe try to run over a pigeon. Just see if you can do it. You might be worried, you know, in that sort of T.S. Eliot sort of uh, Alfred J. Prufrock way of, you know, should I eat a peach? You know, and you don't want to sort of mm-hmm. disrupt anything. Don't run over an animal, you know. Well, Actually, you may not be quick enough. You know, you may just be completely overmatched by a pigeon and it would be sheer ass if you did manage to kill one. So I'm just thinking about that. But my other real tip ties in with the the other uh, tool exercise of meme making. And if we Mm. basically say Mm. a meme for practical purposes is an image and some text. And it can have a range of different purposes, as we know, from just simple humor to kind of advocacy sort of comments to uh, thought starters. It can, you know, there's a big spectrum of intent from silliness to, you know, social justice, you know. But Mm -hmm. if you make a kind of collage collecting or uh, just photographs on your smartphone habit of every so often, just give yourself the challenge of seeing what kind of memes you can make. I think it's an interesting reflection back on language and symbolism, and it opens up another channel. So it works kind of in harmony with my tool. And I I, I put it in the tip category because I just would think it would be something you would do more casually, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just when, when, when it feels like it, just the way you might do a doodle while you're on the phone with someone, you know, it's it's at the doodle level. But mm-hmm. I think it is very instructive. I love that. Yeah, I'll try to make some memes this week, show them to you, see if they're any good. On the dream front, I know you've got some good stuff for the dream this week. But I have to tell you that three days ago, I had a dream that unfortunately I did not write down. I can't remember it, except that I was fighting a big monster (laughs) and I killed it. I killed it in my dream. I killed the monster. And when I woke up, I had none of the anxieties, none of the depression, none of the aches and pains. I woke up feeling like a million bucks after killing this monster in the dream. Now, I would say that this was maybe, so far as I know, a random occurrence. But it unlocked something for me, which is that if you can focus in on your dreams with the idea that you are going to kill monsters, that might be a health tip that could sweep the nation monster dream killing as therapy because it worked i mean i'm still riding high off of it three days later 
David, I love that. I think that is such a beautiful <laughs> idea, so uh, clearly phrased. I'm almost thinking that um, that's the place to to end, because it's such okay. a lovely. It's it's a resonating uh, thought. I <clears throat> I don't want to. I'm happy to go ahead with the, the notes that I've got, but I don't want to muddy the water on that because I really felt that was kind of like a Zen pool. You know, cool. toy pond. You know, and uh, I think it. I mean, it, it's in some ways that that is a fundamentally Jungian idea, mm-hmm. and it does connect back with people like Eliade and Joseph Campbell, and the purpose of mythology and cultural heroes facing monsters. What I think that is interesting as a beautiful inversion is that you bring that back down to the individual, psychic, private, intimate hermetic realm of dreaming and let the individual participate in the healing mythos of monster Mm -hmm. hunting you know monster hunting yes absolutely how cool is that you could get people behind that so easily you're not going to therapy to talk about your depression you're going monster hunting well, think of Sir Joseph Banks, you know, the adventurous natural historian, biologist, circumnavigator himself off with Cook. His, he was asked what he wanted to be and what he thought of himself as. And he's Sir Joseph Banks, Sir Joseph Banks. He, uh, his greyhound jumped off when they were on the, the very lonely edge of North western australia where that is now and he took off into the wilderness to get his greyhound back i mean hardcore he said his goals for himself were to be a voyager a monster hunter and an amoroso let's go yeah (laughs) yeah he smuggled a cabin boy who was no boy onto the ship he wanted a little girlfriend action. So he could on get his fuck on, on the high seas. Yep. I love it. But I do <laughs> have more like that guy. next time. So we can hold this over. Um, okay. Yeah. I, Cause I, I think one way to think about this is, is I've had a few uh, long-term realizations sort of converge about dreaming that I think that there are a couple of really interesting images to talk about which are cool onto themselves. But I think what I've gotten onto is a deeper insight into at least what my dreaming process looks like and how the distinction between my dream life and the waking world to me looks. I've mm. got a clearer sense of that inventory difference. So we might look at that in more sort of extensive detail next time, but I just think that's a lovely idea of you finding real energy in monster hunting and killing in your dreams. Um, We're all proud of you for that. Thanks. I can also see a retro 70s paperback called Monster Hunting by Dr. James Osborne and Dr. Chris Sacknesom, where the cover is a guy in the lotus position, a silhouette with the, the chakras going up, 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 and then a kind of Cthulhu thing coming down. <laughs> and us having a cult with a bunch of white-robed monster hunters 
where we we talk about the monsters that we killed in our dream the night before. It's got legs, man. It does. It's got lots. It's got tentacles. It's, it's got, got tentacles. All sorts of stuff. Yep, it's got uh, hooves. That's fantastic. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful wrap up. Well, cool. Thank you, everyone. You know, we really appreciate the, the listenership, the feedback. We're always wanting to hear more about what what's working and what's not working. Um, are the ideas getting through? Are we actually uh, clarifying anything? And being true to that, lost explorers. Uh, sort of credo you know we, we want to stay excited as much as we can and if we're not exploring ourselves well who will you know we've got a we've got an obligation if we're not exploring ourselves who will